welcome to TYT's The Conversation. It is Adrian Lawrence. Today for you, I have Esma Elhouni. She's the national organizer for Heal Together. Thank you so much for joining us, Esma. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, so you know, I know we're having this conversation before the vote is coming down in terms of the confirmation for the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And that having her on the US Supreme Court would be such a just an incredibly historic moment being the first black woman. But also given her pedigree, her background, all of her experience that she would truly make a game changing kind of contribution. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, we're super excited about um, this opportunity for our nation. Uh, and I think um, what we're seeing right now also is this attack uh, on a black woman using uh, the national uh, attack that is happening all across the nation um, against you know uh, CRT. And we're seeing that she is being Act the very same way, but um, we still have a lot of hope, and we think that uh, having her confirmed is just going to be another proof that, as uh, a nation, we still want progress despite the very loud voices on the opposition. Yes, I love that you speak like that in terms of having her confirmed because I know I've been talking about Justice Brown Jackson for some time now. Um, so I'd like to hold on to that and hope that by the time that this airs, we will have confirmation that we would have this uh, historic and just game changing moment that we can all celebrate. And I know that a lot of people uh, really look up to her and revere her in terms of the diversity she brings to the bench in terms of her public school background. And that's something that is very important to you and your organization. Uh, please do tell us more. Yeah, thank you. And so uh, Race Forward was founded in 1981. And its mission was to advance racial justice through institutions, policy, and also um, working with communities on the ground. Uh, but in the summer of 2020, uh, we all witnessed the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and we saw the protests across the country. Um, and we saw this public interest in trying to understand and address racism. And so um, not just you know between people, but also institutionally in that it really does still exist very much um, in our country. So what we've seen is this backlash, um, which is not a new backlash. We've seen this occur even in history, whenever there was major progress around racial justice. We saw people come out and really try to bring back the progress. And so we saw that in the first reconstruction when we freed people who were enslaved. And of course, only technically people weren't really free. We saw it again, we saw that backlash. We saw it again in the second reconstruction with the civil rights era when we made progress around racial justice. And again, that backlash. Uh, and now what we're seeing this happen again in what um, Reverend William Barber calls the third reconstruction, the time that we are currently in. And this is the response um, that they are using, right? Um, and some of the people are literally calling this the, the, the largest civil rights um, protest after the George Floyd uh, murder. And so this is the backlash that we are now currently seeing. And the boogeyman is CRT. And the center of location of all these attacks is public education. So um, HEAL started in uh, this year basically to try to uh, respond to the attacks on uh, public education and also the attacks on CRT. 
Yes, and that's a very powerful and important thing that needs to be addressed because, you know, we've seen the attacks on the public school system as a result of people fearing integration. We've seen when there's any kind of advancement in terms of black people in our society. We've seen society try to push the pendulum back. Generally, well, largely those in power and the white community come forward and ends up holding everyone back in toto. And so we're seeing that with the public school system. And we know that there are a lot of things that could get make their way up to the Supreme Court as well as those things that are pending. And one thing about Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson is that her record really shows that true commitment to equal justice for all. And that's something that can be extremely powerful, especially when you are dictating the laws and the interpretation of the laws that will govern so much of our society. How does your organization approach her kind of, I guess, open mindedness when it comes to equal justice for everyone as opposed to just for the wealthy and privileged? Thank you for mentioning the wealthy and the privileged. Yeah, I think it's really important to really pull back the curtains and really understand what's really happening in our nation. So we have people that are benefiting from this divide, from this racism, from this fear of, black community, from the fear of the Mexicans, from the fear of the Muslims, and those who have the most to gain from this divide and the most to lose from change and progress are the elites. And we know that Christopher Rufo, who's doing the elites bidding, right? He is was kind of the one who really pushed the, the anti-CRT. And so what we know is that CRT is basically just a, a legal um, framework for understanding how racism manifests in our society. But what we're seeing is now it's become this, you know, the meaning has changed to mean um, anti white. Uh, or anti-American, um, and that's just like if we if we um, want to talk about history, we're anti-American. Uh, if we want to talk about our bad history, that is, and if we want to talk about racism, we're anti-white. Um, and so basically, this is an attempt by the elite. Uh, to really continue this divide. Um, and the location of schools is, is very intentional because these same people that are um, uh, attacking our, our school system are the same people that don't want to promote racial justice. Um, and it's the same people that are trying to take our school systems and privatize them. And there's a reason for that. Uh, and that reason is so that they can make money off of our school systems, right? Um, and so we need to get together, we need to oppose this, we need to organize around this to make sure that um, they do not win and that we know that we are not each other's enemies and the enemies is actually the the 1% and the corporate uh, uh, America, you know, the elites. Absolutely, because if they can keep us busy fighting over racism, over sexism, and all the other forms of oppression, they can continue to pick our pockets and work us into the ground. And that's something we see way too often when it comes to the social inequities. So I do think that that there's something very powerful when it comes to hopefully justice, Kataji Brown Jackson. And the fact that she's a consensus builder in terms of bringing people together, understanding how the law really impacts people's lives and what real people and their lives actually look like, as opposed to having grown up in a very secluded, isolated bubble or on some kind of ivory tower. 
And so having that real life assessment out there is something that you'd want of someone who's interpreting the laws. And so I guess what your organization is doing in order to get this change across the board when it comes to having people in positions of power who recognize the systems of oppression are actually working to dismantle them. Yeah, thank you. So basically, Heal is trying to organize communities. Um, they have uh, money power and we have people power. And so what we're doing is offering communities um, a way to organize themselves. And so what we have is we have a toolkit that people can use to organize uh, their communities and see how to, they can start uh, building around these uh, attacks on CRT, but also strong public education to promote strong, honest, uh, accurate public education. We also have other ways of um, getting involved, signing our pledge. Uh, and then uh, we ha also have trainings to help community members both understand what's happening um, through education and also skill building. Um, yeah, and so those are different ways. Uh, so definitely go to our website. Uh, and and um, get involved if you can. We definitely want people to understand that they have the power um, to take back our communities, but not go back to where we were, but to actually promote a better uh, community. Yes, and definitely moving forward is something that we all need to do. Uh, but we need to do it in a better context and in a better way so that we don't end up repeating a lot of the ill-fated decisions and the outcomes that we've seen from generations before. And that's something I think that a lot of people would like to move toward. But unfortunately, a lot of our society is still stuck in the past where the power was concentrated within certain groups. And so in terms of the work that you do, is there anything coming up that you'd want people to know about? Yes, we have a training coming up that we hope people can plug into if you go to our website. Uh, and so uh, this training is one among many other trainings that will help people better understand how they can organize their communities against these attacks. Wonderful, thank you so much. And can you also tell the viewers where they can find out more information about you or follow you on social media? Yeah, you can find more information at www.healtogether.org. Fantastic, thank you so much for joining us. That's Esma Alhuni, National Organizer for Heal Together. Thank you. It's Adrian Lawrence once again, and this time I am joined by the Director of Incorruptible Mass. That's Anna Callahan, thanks for joining us, Anna. Well, thanks so much for having me, I'm so glad to be back. Yes, it's so good to have you, it seems like it's been a while. What have you been up to? Yeah, I mean, I was on the show in 2018, and you know, back then, just to remind people, we were talking about a strategy, a very powerful strategy that I learned in Richmond, California, and that I've really gone around the country, helping people, sort of guiding people in this, in using this strategy to flip the balance of power at their city council, and you know. To use the strategy, you want to put together a broad coalition, including you know marginalized communities, progressive groups, uh, run a slate of candidates on a solidarity platform. Um, you really focus on a single electoral body, and you support folks. Uh, the elected officials, you got to give them a lot of support after the election is over. Um, we had a great chat about that a couple of years ago, um, and what we're doing now is really built on that um, on that kind of solid basis. All right, and is that what you just described? Is that the incorruptible strategy? It sure is, yeah. 
I worked with the folks from Richmond, uh, California, the Richmond Progressive Alliance, Gail McLaughlin and the wonderful folks there. Um, and uh, and we put together a series of workshops and I've traveled all over the country um, helping people with that. That is very cool. And what made you all choose the name Incorruptible? You know, um, it was because I, at the time, was a big Bernie fan, and I felt like the difference between um, Bernie and a lot of the other candidates was that he had not changed. That he had really remained the same person that he was before his 35 years in office. Um, and in fact, that's actually a guiding principle for us, is the idea that once people are elected, that they tend to move in one direction away from the policies that the vast majority of Americans want and toward the demands of the powerful few. So to be incorruptible means that you really don't follow that pathway and that you remain true to your values. Yeah, and that was something that I, I remember when I saw the first chapter in your book, Fixing Incorruptible, Fixing the Crisis in American Democracy, as you had talked about, Kind of that that gravitational pull where people in politics end up moving away. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, I'd love to. So this this is really what makes our strategy so successful. Um, it's that we we recognize something that happens in uh, in politics that normally. Um, our progressive electoral focus and our progressive electoral playbook. We don't really think about it. Um, and that's kind of this last step. So last time I was here, I said, here's what people usually do. They um, they get progressives together, they wait for people to announce they're running, they pick the least bad ones, they help them get elected. And then the fifth step um, that often people laugh when I say it is after people are elected, when you've elected people and they start doing things you don't like, get angry. <laughs> So what we do and the reason that our strategy is the way that it is, is because it recognizes this problem and, it, and everything in the strategy is designed to solve that problem. It's designed to keep people from, from moving in that direction, to keep them on our side and to really turn them into progressive champions. Mm -hmm. Wow, and the thing is, we've seen a lot of people who seem to come into politics with more of a progressive edge or kind of a more democratic edge, and then they get sold out to the other side. And something that I remember in your book that kind of hit me was this whole Semina syndrome. Oh, <laughs> I've got that stuck with you. We call it Cinema syndrome after Kirsten Cinema, and that means when you start off as somebody really great. Um, Kirsten Cinema, if you remember, uh, if your listeners remember, she was a Green Party candidate. She was anti-capitalism. She was anti-war. She was for every progressive policy in the, you know, in in Warren's um, platform, in Bernie's platform. And look at her now; she is essentially a Republican. She is, you know, preventing voting rights from moving through. <laughs> she's preventing. She's like almost single-handedly stopping all of our policies from being able to pass. Yeah, it's it's quite embarrassing as well as disappointing. Uh, it seems like she got a taste of that money, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, which is unfortunate. And so, it is. In yeah, and she is definitely seemed to be corruptible. So, if you were kind of approaching that from the incorruptible strategy, I guess is there a certain point where you would have gotten in there uh, to prevent this? So this is. Where when you look at our strategy, it might seem complicated. Oh, you gotta have a coalition, you gotta run a slate, you gotta support people after they're elected, which has a number of different moving parts. But really, everything is designed around that guiding principle. The principle of 
helping people who enter this, what I call the horrible poisonous swamp we call a political system, um, helping people to really remain true to their roots. And, and the truth is, it's just about, um, it's about being their tribe. So, so if we leave them alone, if we walk away after the election is over, then the only people that they end up feeling like they have um, that are their colleagues, right? Are the people that are in that political office with them. So we need to sort of be the people who are there for them. Um, and that's where the support after the election, running a slate of candidates helps because they feel like they're on a team with each other. But being providing that support after the election, providing support with constituent services, providing support with helping through, you know, reading through policies, having some legal help who can really help them to make sure they don't get caught up in technicalities when their bills are entered. So those kinds of supports for them to help them do really their daily job. Yeah, and I'm sure because I would imagine it might get rather overwhelming. And also with seeing someone who is new in office and somewhat of in a vulnerable position, I would assume that if the good doesn't get them, the bad will. That's and right. Speaking yeah, for real, and speaking of somebody bad, although I think they were bad coming into politics, you know, in the book you talk about the crisis not starting with Donald Trump. You say he's a syndrome of a democracy in decline that has been going on for decades. Yes. I guess help me break that down some. So again, people, I think people make this um, democracy in crisis fairly complicated and talk about a lot of different issues that you know led to it. And, and I think we break it down as being something very simple. And that simple thing is that it's about power. Right now, the American people do not have the power to make our government do what we want. And you can look at things like, um, you know, uh, background checks on guns, which has like over 90% approval and decades and decades and decades past. We have protest after protest and we cannot pass those policies. Um, climate change, I mean, you get abortion, all sorts of things that, that you know, really, even um, Medicare for all, that the American people want. And we can't get those passed because. The insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the fossil fuel industry, and these other industries, they do have that power. So it's a question of power. And that's where I want to talk for a moment about democracy. And I love that you have asked this question because I have seen in cities, I have seen democracy be revitalized. And I can talk a little bit about what that looks like. So the people who normally don't vote start to vote. People, because their doors are being knocked on, they're being you know accessed and encouraged. People who already vote start voting in also the city election, the state elections, primaries. People who vote tend to, they start becoming active in issue movements. Um, they become activists. Activists become a team of people that are actively working with their progressive elected officials to co-govern to actually strategize on passing policy. And what that allows is the the progressive elected officials can then come right back around to the people who are least involved and they can engage those people. Because that's something that really the elected officials are uniquely positioned to do. And by providing them with support, we give them the time that they can in fact do that to engage marginalized voices in the political process. And it is so beautiful to see. And I'm excited to be doing that in Massachusetts with our organization Incorruptible Mass, where we are running a slate of candidates for the Massachusetts State House. 
That that sounds like a very powerful thing and so incredibly important and that it needs to be done. Especially because it seems like a lot of people are either fed up with the system or they're willing to go against their own interest. And something you had also noted in your book that really stood out to me was a quote by Michael Moore about Donald Trump supporters view him as a human Molotov cocktail they can throw into a political system that has left them behind. Inequality before COVID was higher than it had been at any point since 1929. And we all know what happened in the 30s, right? In Europe, in the 30s, they ended up with a Mussolini and a Hitler. And we fortunately ended up with an FDR. When inequality gets incredibly high, you get change, but it doesn't necessarily mean you get good change. And I will say during COVID, we've had a skyrocketing of inequality and things cannot continue. So the decades long um, crisis in democracy is that the American people cannot make their government serve them. They can't. And that's what's been going on for a long time. And what I genuinely believe in my heart that this strategy can solve. Yes, and we need something that is for sure because especially with Trump knocking on that door for 2024, it could be a very scary thing if the American people go ahead and answer it. And I know that you all are working very hard at Incorruptible Mass to get the right progressive faces out there and to provide them with the proper support so they don't end up with that whole cinema syndrome. But in terms of your next steps, you talked about work you're doing in Mass. Yeah, so I know that you have a national audience and I wanna just make a little case for why it's important to work in blue states. Um, Republicans know exactly how to get their horrible regressive policies passed. They go to deep red states, they take over the state legislature and they pass policy that they can then cookie cutter to other states and it invigorates their base. We need to do the same thing. We need to go to deep blue states, pass the policies that our people want. And then use that to take those policies to other states. That's the way that we're gonna get policy passed nationally. And that's why I'm doing this work in Massachusetts, which I think is a great example of a place to uh, to be working in. Excellent, and can you please tell the viewers where they can find more information about Incorruptible Mass? Yep, so it is incorruptiblemass.org. Um, you can also find, you can download the first chapter of my book straight from that website. Um, and you can support us there as well. Excellent, thank you so much for joining us. That is Anna Callahan, Director of Incorruptible Mass, also the author of Incorruptible, Fixing the Crisis in American Democracy. Definitely head on over to her website, support, download, do all you need to do to uplift as we need more progressive voices in the game. Thank you so much for joining us, Anna, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, it was great to be here.